All right, ladies. Good evening and welcome to week three of our Bible study. My name is Helen Wallenberger, and I'm one of the teachers um, here at our women's Bible study. I've been teaching in this capacity for uh, several semesters now, and it is always a joy and a privilege um, to stand here. Uh, what a week of study it has been. Can everybody agree? Such a packed passage of uh, Scripture, and I bet that all of you would easily spend, you know, a couple more hours than your groups discussing and wrestling with the text, and I sure wish I had a couple hours to go over it here uh, with you, but uh, we're going to behave, and we're going to stick to the schedule, so um, all right. So in my opening today, I want to really um, emphasize that while what I'm here to do is to bring uh, to light and to share my understanding of this passage, to share with you the context and the context uh, of uh, what we're studying here, and to share the meaning of words and actions that took place, um, I also want to desire you to go deeper in your knowledge of the Lord. The true desire of my heart that after I'm done today that you will leave feeling thirsty, that you will be thirsty to know the Lord, to dive deeper into His Word. And in the words of one of the prominent Bible teachers, I heard him once say, I want you to say, where did that fool get that? So, I mean, I don't necessarily want you to say that, but seriously, I believe that we all have the same access to God. We can all approach Him. We all, especially here in America, have all the resources literally at our fingertips to study the Word of God, to research, to dive deeper. And unfortunately, um, oftentimes we rob ourselves of this opportunity and we end up studying, pursuing, and, and just spending our time um, figuring out much lesser things. So like I said, um, I am absolutely convinced that it is not a matter of giftedness, uh, certain abilities, um, intellect, or um, any other, other human abilities, but rather our desire to pursue the Lord that actually in the long run leads us to the marvelous revelation of who God is. So let's dive in. Last week we finished with the strong statements about God that revealed to us some amazing truths about Him. And so in verse 24, we read that God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. So for today, I want you to follow with me in the text, and we're going to open up in chapter 3, verse 1. Exodus 3, 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within the bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. 
Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the territory of the Canaanites, Hethites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way of Egyptians are oppressing them, therefore go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding. So the phrase here is in imperfect tense in Hebrew, which means that whatever he was doing, his vocation, it was his vocation. He was doing that day in and day out, and this is basically was uh, who he was. He was a shepherd. And so there is absolutely no context here that allows us to think that what, um, you know, while doing that, he was eagerly expecting for the Lord to come and speak to him and reveal himself, and much less so call him to this big mission. And we all know that the mission will end up being pretty big. He will um, be sent to redeem his people from slavery. So uh, he was clearly just living his daily life. And um, while I was writing that, you know, we all walk in testimony, right? So my testimony of coming to know the Lord, or rather the Lord coming and grabbing my heart and my attention was pretty much the same along the same lines. I was 33 years old. I was living my life. I wasn't searching for the Lord. I was taking care of business, raising my kids, doing the career. But I think I had the experience of the burning bush in my life, and something uh, brought my attention, and so I'm extremely grateful for that. So the point here is that he was clearly just living his daily life, not expecting anything. And as we remember from last week's study that Moses actually had tried to deliver his people, he in fact even killed an Egyptian taskmaster, and then he became afraid and he fled. And so here is Moses, 40 years later, pastoring the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law. Now, ladies, I wish I could tell you why this uh, guy has so many different names, right? His father-in-law, but I honestly don't know. And I'm like, okay, if any one of you figure that out, please tell me, because I'm curious. I would like to know. And so while we do not know much about the name choices for this man, we sure do know that there was something special about him in terms of knowledge of Yahweh, and Yahweh is the name revealed to God by Moses later in this passage, verse 14. Um, and in other words, he knew the God of Israelites. It is believed that Jethro knew something about Yahweh before he knew Moses. Interestingly enough, 
the Bible does provide context for us to see that there were people outside of people of God, outside of the cold nation that had contact with him. Just last semester, we were studying in the book of Genesis, and we came across uh, Melchizedek uh, while we were uh, learning about the storyline of Abram. And Melchizedek was a Canaanite priest and king. And the same situation is in the story of the life of uh, a man named Job. Job was, um, Job 1.1 tells us he was a man from the land of Uz, a man of complete integrity who turned away from evil. And I mean, Job clearly knew Yahweh. There is a lot of faith context for us to assume that. And uh, so again, while we do not know the context of how Jethro knew Yahweh, um, it is still most likely that he did, and I find it pretty interesting and noteworthy. So now we read that Moses led the flock to the side, uh, to the far side of Horeb, where he met the angel of the Lord. Now, uh, Horeb is uh, the name of the mountain, pretty much the same as Sinai. It's just uh, believed that Horeb uh, covers a, a larger territory than um, Sinai, and there he meets the angel of the Lord. So unlike the fact of these different name choices for uh, Moses' father-in-law that I merely just find curious, the account of the angel of the Lord is rather fascinating. And so I want you to follow along with me in the text, and we're going to look at a few names used for the same divine person who spoke here to Moses. So in verse 2, it says, The angel of the Lord in a flame of fire within the bush... In verse 4, it says, when the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called out to him. Or we can read it as when the Lord Yahweh saw that the, he turned aside, God Elohim called out to him. And then, of course, later in verse 14, where God reveals his name to Moses as Yahweh. So for those of you who are like me, when you read verse 4, you go like, hmm, I wonder why did the Lord saw, but God called. So we uh, get to know the, through the study of the Bible that God is revealed by different names, and each name of God is given to us as a new revelation of his deity, of who he is, of his character. And so I want you to see, and we have the screen for you here, that um, when in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, in the beginning God is God Elohim. And then now Yahweh, the name of God given to Moses in verse 14, is given to Moses and to us for a deeper understanding of deity, and it is the same God that we encounter in the book of Genesis 1, where God created everything out of nothing. So I want you to listen to this uh, brief commentary that I found. A person might see a powerful expression and say, Elohim. As his knowledge of truth matures, Elohim might take upon a specific character, for example, El Shaddai, and if that knowledge moves into a relationship, Elohim is now identified as Yahweh. So we will turn to the name of Yahweh just in a little bit, but for now we're going to camp and look at the um, appearance of the angel of the Lord. In Old Testament, there are 
several instances when the angel appearing is the Lord himself. And again, how do we know it? We know it by the context when we read it. And then there are instances when the angel that appears is merely an angel, is a created being um, who is dispensed by God for a certain assignment. Um, so clearly, here in verses 2 and 4, it is safe to say that, God, that Moses encountered the Lord himself. If you're curious or would like to maybe study more about it, I wanted to give you some references from the Old Testament when the Lord um, who appeared was actually a deity, was God himself. And so that'll be um, in Genesis 16, verses 7 and 13, Genesis 22, 11, 15, 31, verses 11 and 13, 48, verses 15 and 16 in the book of Exodus, here where we see chapter 3, verses 2 and 4. Also Exodus 13, 21, 14, 19. In the book of Judges, Judges 2, verse 1, Judges 6, verses 22 through 23, and Judges 13, verses 2 through 22, and then we see it in Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 2. All right, um, so back to where we were. It was pretty clear to us that what Moses encountered was a mystery. It was a bush on fire, yet not consumed. So have you ever wondered why bush? Like what was so significant about the bush? I couldn't find anything significant, and I honestly think there was nothing significant. It's just that God chose the plain desert bush uh, to uh, reveal his presence, to manifest his presence. And so I know, um, you know, I, I, as I study that, I all, uh, often wonder, you know, how many times do we encounter in life something remarkable, maybe nothing even short of glory of God, and we just um, check it out and we kind of think, oh, that's weird, you know? And so, honestly, ladies, I believe that the work of the devil in this world is to convict us that something supernatural of God is weird and to shine away from that. And as I read this encounter of Moses, I'm honestly thinking, well, how good for him not to look at that bush and say, hmm, that's just weird. They're going to get my flock and, you know, go the other direction. But he saw something. And so we see him saying, I will go and uh, check it out. So the supernatural side caught his attention. And he, um, so, and he said, I'll go and see why it is not consumed. Um, so something that also came across my mind is just altogether the day and age that we live in, ladies. You know, we live in this age of high technology, of high IQs, or I got everything done. And I think that maybe that's why we're literally uh, losing the awe of God, that we're not even uh, expecting something supernatural from God. But I want us to encourage not to merely know about God, but to desire to know Him personally. And so, what a mystery, the burning bush. Many of us say, wow, if I could only see a burning bush, that would be a mystery, right? Right? But listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verses 26-27. 
It says, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then in the book of Ephesians, he writes, and to bring to light that the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in, Christ, in God, who created all things. Ladies, these verses are written to us, to new covenant believers. They are written to us and about us. And so I truly hope that this passage of Scripture, this particular encounter that we read about, does not simply give you a historical evidence of the God of Israel and the history of the people of Israel, but may it ignite the fire in your soul to know the living God today and to live with Him daily. Do you know Him? Do you know Him? So further in our text, we see that God tells Moses to remove his sandals, and um, that is assumed to be a sign of respect and reverence, and I think rightly so, because taking off the shoes was a sign of uh, humility. And he tells them that the place where he stands is holy. And like I said earlier, uh, nothing makes that place um, holy. There was nothing special about the place, just like there was nothing special about the bush. And the only thing that made it special was the presence of God. So the only thing that makes anyone or anything special is the presence of God. And I heard it said, it's not about where you go, it's about who you know, right? So it's about who. Um, in your homework, you paid attention to how what God told uh, Moses he will do for Israelites was more than what they were crying for. And isn't that a great reminder that God would always do exceedingly and abundantly more than we ever think or imagine? So you see, when we cry out to God, ladies, and I want you to pay attention, we can only ask of what we know to ask him of. Or we will only ask that what we think God can do. But I think that it never even crossed Israelites, the mind of Israelites, that they will not be simply rescued from the oppression, but that they will, as verse 8 says, be brought from the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So I hope you see it here that just like the Egyptians who were saved from slavery and brought into this amazing land, God delivers us and saves us from our sins, and he brings us into his kingdom. What a wonderful God, right? Apostle Peter put it this way. He said, God calls us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a great reminder to us that the Exodus story is our story. So now throughout chapter uh, 3, verse 11, up to chapter 4, verse 14, we encounter a dialogue that took place uh, between Moses and God. And the first question that Moses asks is, why me? Right? And God quickly tells him that mm, it's not about you. It's about me, and he replies by saying that I will certainly be with you. And he says that this will be the sign to you that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, 
you will all worship God on the same mountain. So I find it interesting that God will perform so many miracles for people through Moses, signs and wonders, right? So that they will believe that God sent him. But then he, he, here he gives a Mo, Moses a promise that you will know that I indeed send you because you will see the sign you will worship at that mountain. So the reason that stood out to me, because it kind of tells us that even though Moses right now has this grand encounter, you know, this vision with the Lord and converses with him, his entire journey of redeeming Israelites will be a journey by faith. It will always be a faith journey. But in the mercy of God, he said, you will worship me here, and you will know that it was I who sent you. So as their conversation progresses, um, we clearly see that what seemed to be like Moses' humility grew into something of a disbelief, right? And then we all, all know that unbelief or disbelief always leads to disobedience. And so I personally think that um, God is uh, desiring to see our faith more than obedience, and I do not think that one is possible without the other. Um, and that reminded me of the story of Peter. You know, he got out of that boat. He, 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 he started walking on that water, but he could only walk on it as long as he had faith, as long as he could keep his eyes on Jesus. Uh, so we finally come to the epitome of this passage where Moses inquires the name of God. Now to us Westerners, it's kind of like, why would he ask that? God did tell him, I am the God of Abraham, I am the God of Isaac and Jacob, and I am the God of your father and your fathers. But you see, the deity really mattered. And as I said earlier, the name, the name of God revealed more of who he is. And so when um, uh, he, asked, uh, he asked that question, we read in verses uh, 14, 15, that God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to Israelites, I am has sent, you, has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the Israelites, the Lord the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. So here we see God revealing himself as the one who is the self-existent one. He reveals himself as the God who never changes, the God who keeps his promises, and the God who can be trusted and must be obeyed. I wish, ladies, truly wish we had more time for more extensive study here, and I know that we don't, but I do want to share something with you. And it is the meeting of the, the meaning of the tetragrammaton, or the first four, I mean the four letters disclosing the name of God in verse 14. Uh, so basically, this is the name that we pronounce in English is Yahweh or Jehovah. And so the uh, tetragrammaton in Palo-Hebrew, and Palo-Hebrew is the language of the Hebrew Bible that, that the first Hebrew Bible was written in, and it stands for hand, behold, nail, behold. And so the name that God revealed of himself to Moses here is the name of God who is the Redeemer. 
the Redeemer, is the name that through all generations we are to remember him. So later on, we enter into the storyline of Scripture where um, Yahweh sends Moses to deliver and rescue people from oppression. And it, I find it also worth mentioning that this is the first time when um, God mentions Israelites as my people. Well, remember the promise given to Abraham, right? And so finally he says, my people. And so we see God promising Moses his presence, his, the very words to say. He promises miracles and signs, and he promised provision. Speaking of provision, I know that some of you were really curious as to why the Lord will allow Israelites um, and more so command the Israelites to uh, plunder the Egyptians, right? And I know that some translations, I think in it's, it, King James says borrow, but it's not borrow like they're going to borrow and like return. No, they were taking it. And so... Um, we, we, I believe that it is uh, to, to see that the Egyptians will pay Israelites for all these years of slavery, right? There is also the, the reason why they needed provision of their journey. And then we also know that silver and gold will be used for what? Any takers? What would Israelites use gold and silver for? The tabernacle, right? Uh, but most importantly, the fact is that this was um, fulfillment of the promise given in Genesis chapter 15, uh, verse 14. So Genesis 15, 13, and 14 says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve, and afterward they will go out with many possessions. So as we um, enter in the fourth chapter of this book, and as we continue in the dialogue between Moses and God, we see that again Moses um, asks questions on behalf of Israelites. Did you, by the way, catch that? Did you catch that he says, oh God, what if they ask? What do I tell them? I mean, this is what he said, but I know that Moses is asking these questions, and he's the one who truly needs to know the name of God, who needs to experience all these miracles so that his faith could be built up. Amen? And so in verse 10, yet another concern is addressed with a reminder of who God is. God says, I am the creator. I'm making, you know, your mouth, and I'm the one who helps you speak. And, um, yeah, and, and Moses says, I have never been eloquent. My mouth and my tongue are sluggish. And so the Lord's answer is sort of like, I know, but you keep forgetting that I will be with you and that I will help you speak. Like you see this balance, Moses is like, man, this is such a great task, you know, and I already failed it, by the way, 40 years ago, and I want to do it, but, but I can't. And God is saying, it's not about you, Moses. It's not about you. I am will be with you. And so um, I think it's a great reminder and a warning to us that we do not need to rely on our own strength and ability. 
I truly believe that God is not interesting in, interested in us showing off. He's interesting in him to be shown and shining in us. So as we move on, um, here, I actually, oh yeah, that's the other point I wanted to bring, that you see when Moses says he's not eloquent, I do not think that God will kind of be like, I'll come with you and I'll make you eloquent. Do you know what I'm saying? What I think it points to is what we find in the vision that is recorded in Zechariah 4th chapter, verse 6. Not by strength or by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of the armies. And then in verse 9, then you will know that the Lord of armies has sent you. Or in the words of our, very, of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ, recorded in John 15, uh, verse 5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Ladies, the gospel of natural strength doesn't work. I mean, if we ever try to do something on behalf of God or for God, like Moses tried in the chapter before, we're going to fail. And I think that we need to pause. We need to embrace who God is. We have to confess and repent, and we have to come and bring all of it to God and let Him be our vine and let Him give us the strength to do it. Um, in, uh, Apostle Paul says something in, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 9, and I, I'm pretty sure you all recall it. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. And I think it was for Paul as much as it is for us to understand that we do not have to get it all together in the flesh. Um, our weaknesses will never stop God, and in fact, God is working a miracle in our lives, and then us living a life of complete dependency of this, on the supernatural God is actually very joyous. It is a great joy to live that life and, uh, versus the life of having it all together and not even expecting a miracle of God. So now in verse 13, we finally see Moses running out of excuses, right? No matter how valid the excuses were, he seems to run out of them. And then he asks the Lord to send someone else. So two things here. First, that still did not uh, hinder the plans of the Lord. That still didn't stop him and prevented him from using Moses. And uh, number two is that he may have changed, you know, the tone of voice a little bit, but he still made a way and he addressed the concern. And he said he will send his brother Aaron with him. And so the story continues with Moses asking Jethro's permission to leave, and he does get, uh, he gets his blessing and he says, on the journey. Now, in chapter 4, verses 21 23, the Lord instructs Moses to perform uh, uh, all the miracles that he put in his power. He also um, warns him about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, and uh, he reveals the plan for the exchange of the firstborn son. All the plagues, ladies, that we read about here that um, uh, God revealed uh, to Moses uh, and empowered him to do so, we see that they're all attacking and addressing the deities of Egypt. They're all against the gods of Egypt, right? And the very last plague should straight into the heart of Pharaoh, who, by the way, was believed to be a deity himself and was believed to be a son 
a son of the god of sun, Ra. And so, um, uh, and I find it fascinating because I think that throughout the duration of times the plagues were happening that were against those gods, I believe God was giving e Egyptians a chance. Did you catch that? Do you see that? Because when we read further down in the text, it does says that the mixed multitude um, set on the journey. And so uh, this is uh, very important to see because we see the heart of God, right? We see the heart of God and that even through the punishment and those plagues, he is presenting himself for who he is. Um, all right, so the, um, the four warning that God gives to Moses, right, when he says that he will harden the heart of um, Pharaoh, um, do you think that the foreknowledge of God that Pharaoh will harden his heart left Pharaoh without a fair chance? I mean, it is a hard question. I will agree with you. But in your homework, you kind of looked and you saw that previously, right, that the, the Pharaoh's heart was already hardened, right? I personally think it's not like Pharaoh uh, wanted, you know, to come and bow down before Yahweh, that his heart was open to let the Israelites know. He had a predisposition, so to speak, you know, and his heart was already hardened. I mean, he thought he was a deity himself. So he was not going to bow down before um, Yahweh. And so, of course, God knows that because God, as we just um, said and, and as we're learning, is the self-existent. And he existed always. He's not bound to time. And so he knows the end of the beginning. And that way we can know that God is in control of history. In verse 24, going down, we, uh, we encounter yet another event that surely, I guess, raised an eyebrow. And uh, let's try to address uh, that too. So first, we need to remember that... Um, in the book of Genesis, number one, we learn that God is a God of covenant. Number two, in Genesis 17, that the covenant of circumcision was established. And number three, that any uncircumcised male will be cut off his people. So this is kind of the idea to keep in mind when we come and we read this passage that we can surely wrestle with. So the question, why was the son of Moses not circumcised, is probably the question, you know, you want to hear the answer. But the principle, one of the principles that we hold here at the Bible study is that if Bible does not clearly state something, that we're quite honestly left to guess. And so there may be many guesses as to why. But I personally think it's not why he was not circumcised or why the son was not circumcised, but what does it mean for us? So uh, first and foremost, God takes his covenant seriously. And just like in the past, it was a matter of life and death, whether circumcised, not circumcised, male, so it is for us today. We are either alive in the covenant relationship uh, with God through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, or we're cut off. We're cut off from God. And the second point that I want to bring is uh, that despite Moses being the main character up to this point in passage, uh, 
and after carefully examining different interpretations and uh, specifically looking up the previous verse um, regarding dealing with the firstborn, the text here allows us to believe that him in verse 24 refers to the character in verse 25. So it speaks of Moses' son. There is strong evidence that it was Moses' son that the Lord intended to put to death. And if we interpret it like this, then uh, the parallel is pretty striking. God warns that he will slay Pharaoh's firstborn and that God attempts to kill Moses' son, perhaps even his firstborn. Once we know the parallel between the event in these verses and the foretelling of the slaying of the firstborn of Egyptians, other parallels become clear. We see Zipporah circumcising her son and therefore saving him from death. Now things uh, in, in this chapter, uh, the issue of blood is brought up, right? We hear Zipporah saying the statements twice. She says, you are a bridegroom of blood to me. You are a bridegroom of blood. And so um, it may go without notice, but it's actually the first time, it is the first time in this book that the blood is associated with circumcision, so I personally understand it as a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the blood that's going to happen at the Passover at the time of Exodus, and I surely understand it as a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of the precious blood of God's firstborn Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we are reminded that Exodus' story is our story. So we finish the passage of Scripture by seeing an act of obedience on the, ha on, 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 on the part of Moses and Aaron and an act of worship on the part of the Israelites. So verses 30 and 31, Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses and performed the signs before the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had paid attention to them, and that he had, send, had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshipped. So ladies, like I said, I hope that this passage today um, surely encourages us to desire to know God deeper, um, that it will just uh, prompt us to substitute our fear with faith, and that um, our weaknesses will not be stopping us. Uh, remember that God does not call the equipped. He equips the called, and um, we really need him. And so I also want us to kind of pull out the principle and always remember that, like I said earlier, it is God that makes something holy. We are to remember the promise given to us by faith in Jesus that God himself, the Holy Spirit, dwell in us and that the burning bush of this passage is available to us and resides in us today. And so let's uh, just bring our concerns to him. Uh, let's humble ourselves. Let's ask for help. He is the God who gives beyond anything that we can ever imagine. And let's enjoy the privilege of knowing Creator. And I trust that this closing verses that we just read, the closing verses of today's passage will teach us to act in faith. And that in acting in obedience will always result in bringing God glory.
What a privilege, ladies, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege to be the ambassadors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a privilege to witness to others about our Redeemer. And the greatest joy is that when we witness about our Redeemer and people finally behold who He is and give it all to Him, they too will worship alongside of us, our great God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you, Father, for the marvelous truth of your word, Lord. Father, we thank you that you are the self-revealing God, that you created us to know you with the desire, Lord, to know you, that, God, we have your word that reveals who you are, that we have the spirit that confirms who you are, Lord, that, Father, we are your holy nation, Lord. We are your people that, and you are our God. God, we thank you that we do not have to rely on ourselves and our strength, ability, knowledge, Lord. That, Father God, all you ask of us is to yield to you, Lord, to trust you, to call upon your name, and you are here to deliver us. Thank you that you not only deliver us from our sins, but you also bring us into the kingdom of your son, Jesus Christ, that we may know him, trust him, walk with him daily. I pray, Father, that our hearts will be filled with joy of this truth, Lord, and that, Father, we'll be on fire for you and your gospel. We'll love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen.